Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country in the world. Good morning, this is Annie for Showreel, 3CR's look at the Australian film industry. Not just... uh, people who make films, uh, the films themselves and technicians, but also how they're screened and some other weird and wonderful byways because films aren't just features. There's lots of things going on in uh, the visual arts in Australia. And one of these things is going to be talked about today. We're going to have a chat with Jen Anderson. Now, Jen Anderson is a musician and a person who writes scores for films. Now, a while ago, Jen wrote a film score for an amazing film called the... uh, called. Pandora's Box. Now, this is a 1928 silent expressionist German film. It was uh, a full feature and it starred the original bop girl, Louise Brooks. Now, Louise Brooks is the one who originally made fashionable the uh, bob haircut, for example. She's an absolute symbol of a particular period in history. Anyway, uh, this film is going to be shown at uh, the Astor on Sunday, this Sunday, the 25th at the two o'clock, at two o'clock at the Astor. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity really to see a classic silent epic being shown with a live musical score that has been created specifically for the particular film. Anyway, well, let's have a a listen to a little bit of the music and then go into a chat with Jen Anderson. Jeannie Anderson, I was really impressed with uh, the whole notion of there being a, uh, a a new print of Pandora's Box and music to go with it at the Astor. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project came about? 
it does have a long history. I've got a long history with the film and with the score. I actually originally wrote it many years ago, back in 1993. Um, what possessed you? Well, I was commissioned to write it, actually, at the time, by the two um, fellows who owned the Valhalla Cinema at the time, which is in Northcote, and they put on ten sessions, which all sold out, and I subsequently went on to a few of the other cities around Australia. But the problem with the film at the time was that it was actually only available in film format and it had to be uh, screened at 18 frames a second, which made it logistically really tricky because you needed to have a special cog, apparently. I don't quite yeah, understand yeah, yeah. what's going on. I mean, it's quite clear that uh, this sort of thing has to happen. That's one of the reasons for why... All the silent films we ever saw when we were kids on the TV, they were all speeded up. Right. And they looked ridiculous. Mm. And it was this revelation when someone actually decided to show it at the right speed mm. that to think that, uh, you know, that they weren't completely idiotic films. Mm. I'm sure most of your listeners know that most film runs at 24 frames, frames a second. A second. So, to, so you do need this special cog for to run something at 18 frames a second, and um, which really limited where the film could be screened because you needed a skilled projectionist and you needed the, the cog. Um, and the other logistical difficulty with that was that I've written this score to sit really quite closely or very closely with the, with the scene changes and things. And so I was running it with a click track to keep us in time, but the film... Back then, uh, depending on which cinema you were at, it, it never ran at a true time. So, Ooh, so yeah. did that mean that the musicians had to be conscious of what was going on? Well, I certainly had to as a conductor. Yeah, well, I was I perform as well. I'm, it's a string quartet, so um, I play one of the violins, um, but I also sort of make sure that everything's running in time. Um, so, it's extraordinary. It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> anyway, we we never had any real disasters with the screening of the film, but I'm really glad that this time around it's actually going to be um, screened as a DCP, so digital cinema package. Because um, it's been remastered. It's been remastered, yeah, which means that it will run completely true to time. So I'm really confident that this time I can turn on a click track, we can start playing and I don't have to freak out about it, you know, so mod falling cons. behind. This, this, is <laughs> the, this is the good thing about ModCon. It is, yeah. One of the good things, although I must say that um, maybe some people, diehard film fans, still haven't quite come around to uh, liking digital projection, but I can reassure you that this print is just looking absolutely gorgeous. It is, I mean, I know this film really well. Um, I've been working with a much older print that's full of scratches and glitches and this is just beautiful. The restoration work that they've done is just really nice. Before we go on to the film, what was it like for you as a musician to work so closely to, with a, a film? Because I know that when people are learning how to make films, they quite often, as one of their things that they have to do, is actually make a visual uh, using some sort of music as a background piece, which mm. is, you know, which is a, a clue that actually the visualization of things are closer to music than people generally understand. Mm. Is that what you find when you're doing what you're doing? Well, what uh, are you doing? That's what the question. What am I doing? What well, are you doing? I'm allowing whenever I write for film, whether it's a talking film or a silent film, I'm allowing the uh, vision to influence 
the creativity of the music that I write. So, that, and that's what I completely love about writing for film and television is that you're feeding off a visual image to inspire your own creativity. It's different with silent film than it is with talkies for obvious reasons. First of all, I mean, the music's going all the way through. Um, secondly, the director's dead. And so, is the <laughs> so they can't boss you. <laughs> they can't boss me around, which, um, you know, it's wonderfully liberating. <laughs> I mean, when I originally wrote this score, um, it was a decision between myself and with um, John Rouse and Barry Peake who were the owners of the Valhalla at the time, to, to write it for a string quartet. And that was the only brief that I had. So um, actually, when I originally wrote that score, I also had a little bit of synth in it. But I've decided to remove that for this presentation. I think it sounds dated. And I'm and now, sort of 23 years on, I'm looking back on it. And I thought that I would rather just have it for pure string quartet. Did you have any uh, reference back to what it would have been like when it was actually shown? Because they would have had music. Yeah, well, they did have. I I know that there was a full orchestra who performed uh, when the film was originally released, and that score has been lost. Yeah, so we we haven't heard it. Um, There's a version of the film going around with a score by a guy called Pierre Rubin, and that's... um, I guess sort of modern, classical. It's like a mini orchestra. It's got percussion, but quite a lot of orchestral scoring, so woodwinds and etc. Um, but in the end, I guess I just wanted to make it my own. You know, I just wanted to write what I felt came out of me when, as, as I looked at the images, and I did a lot of research into Louise Brooks and. It, into the film and the era it was set and that sort of thing. So let's go to go to the film because it is quite extraordinary and she's extraordinary too. Mm. It's it was made in in Europe, so she'd escaped. Yep. She was American, but mm. she turned her back on Paramount and went mm. off to the to Europe. Yep. Well, Pabst, who's G. W. Pabst, who was the director of Pandora's Box, actually. Um, asked her to come and do the film in Germany and it was all happening around that time as you say um, when talkies were coming in and it was a very difficult time for a lot of actors because um, a lot of those larger film houses such as Paramount Paramount, were using the fact that talkies were coming in as a a negotiation for cheaper contracts. Because your voice might be shit house. Yeah, yeah. So, and she wasn't going to have a bar of that. So, yeah, it it, I mean, in the end, it did become really difficult for her, but she did this extraordinary film with um, Pabst, and, but that didn't do her much good at the time. The film itself wasn't really well received. It was, um, well, quite racy for its time.
You're on 3CR with Annie on Showreel and we're having a chat with Jen Anderson who's the person who has been the uh, composer of the music that we're listening to on the program today. It was created for a fantastic film called Pandora's Box. Absolutely extraordinary film with a completely influential sort of uh, formats as well as uh, themes. It was made in 1928 and on Sunday at the Astor, that's the 25th of June at 2pm, they're going to recreate this silent era by showing the, a remastered version of the film with a live string quartet playing the music that has been scored for the film by Jen Anderson. So you should actually try and get a ticket to this because this is an extraordinary event, once in a lifetime. Very hard to actually get it to all come together, as uh, Jen tells us. We're going to play a little bit more of her music before we talk again to Jen Anderson about the score that she's created for Pandora's Box. A yeah, little yeah. bit about the film. I don't want yeah. to sort of give away the whole. No, no. But the thing about the film is that it's in its time. I mean, people have this idea, uh, weird construction about modernity, mm. and anything goes today. But in that period of changeover before the war, because mm. she stopped her career in 1938, mm. uh, and this film was made in the... 19, late, 1928 it was made, it was released early in 1929. Right. So it was yep. right in the middle of the uh, period of... Uh, Excess, mm. really, and also the filmmaker was called an impressionist filmmaker. Mm. So it's right at the beginning of the vocabulary of mainstream filmmaking being made. Mm. So mm. it's really like a crossover between art 
and commercialism, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I think that's a good way of, of describing it. There's certain scenes in the film that certainly um, show that um, excess of um, hedonism that was going on at that time in the flapper era. It's a fantastic um, uh, impression of that era in the sets, in the costumes, in just the the story itself. And she herself is an icon of the period Mm. because Mm. she was the one who made the bob fashionable. That's right. Yeah, She used to hang out with some pretty famous people, so... Charlie Chaplin was one of her beaux at one stage, and and um, he liked them young. He did like them young. <laughs> so, you know, she was living the life. She was she came from Kansas, so you know, she came from a country town and and sort of entered this world of of stardom and and um, but you know, she was like a, a short lived burning flame, really. Um, and after. Um, as you say, in the 30s, when she stopped working altogether, she really fell, became a recluse, an alcoholic, and was living in poverty until she was rediscovered in the 50s. Um, and then she... So she was rediscovered and the film was rediscovered and then she ended up becoming quite a fine writer, a non-fiction writer. And I've been to Eastman House in uh, upstate New York... Where, which is the American archival film body, and checked out the library there, and I've seen some works that she's written in the margins of, which was um, was really you know thrilling for me. And the other thrilling thing for me, I hope you don't mind that I'm rambling a bit, but um, oh, I think she's fascinating. Yeah, but I, I have to talk about one of the other actors, Franz Liederer, um, who plays one of the main roles in the film as um, young Alva Schoen. I met him. Um, in person when he was in, probably would have been 92 or 93, um, in, and he was living in, in San Diego. And I, my sister was living in that area at the time, so um, when we were going over for a family visit, I tracked him down and he graciously accepted to meet me for about 30 minutes. And it was a really big thrill for me to be able to meet somebody who had been a part of that fantastic film. I've got to say, Louise Brooks gets all the kudos for this film, but there's some other really good acting in it as well. And um, I actually think that Franz Lederer, um acted really well in that film. I just wanted to mention about one of the other characters in the film, um, a girl called Alice Roberts, who plays a character of Countess Geschwitz. She is in love with um, Louise Brooks's character, Lulu, and she, in fact, plays the first lesbian character known in silent film and I think that in itself is a really strong point about the film and probably one of the reasons why it was heavily censored and and um, perhaps um, uh, maligned in its reviews um, because it's taken a long time for for um, gay rights to be accepted um, and still now there's, of course, everyone, you know, it's um, a long way to go. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. People have this impression of uh, silent movies as being overacted mm. in our terms, overacted mm. in our time, ty- highly stylized. Uh, and it's interesting to me because uh, over time, I ever since they stopped playing them too fast, uh, I began to become much more interested in the, them as films themselves. And I've read a variety of uh, people who 
really loved silent movies and why they like them. Mm. And it's given me a completely different understanding of what it means, you know, the expressiveness of the face mm. and the expressiveness of the body and those kind of things. Things that uh, once might have been considered to be uh, over the top actually have this other thing going on, a whole other choreography going on. Mm. And so it's very interesting, isn't it, mm. in terms of filmmaking? Mm. Mm. Most certainly. And, um, well, Louise is particularly good at the naturalistic approach. Um, and I, well, probably credit should go to Paps for that because he is renowned or was renowned for um, bringing out that um, natural vibe of people I guess and Louise just um, absolutely shines on the screen she's just luminous and you are drawn to her at all I mean she's in you know just about every single scene and uh, you're really drawn to her but there's I mean I, I guess as with many films the more you watch the film the more you get out of it but I think particularly with silent films and especially complex ones like this there's so much going on there's so much rich detail in the in the scenery and in what's going on around Louise that if you you spend your first couple of viewings just looking at Louise and then you start looking at other things that are going on in the scene you know in the scenery around her and you really pick up a lot of other other detail about the era. How long is the film? I hadn't thought about that. Oh, well, it's long. It's two and a quarter hours, 133 minutes long. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So when we perform it, which is really arduous for performers, um, particularly string quartet when you're reading and having to play to a click track for that long, it's um, really quite exhausting. Yeah. But we, um, um, we have a break, so we have a little interval at a, an appropriate moment in the film, which is probably good for the audience as well and um, and and also good for us. And and that sort of makes it a bit more of an event as well, I think. Yeah, it's a very glamorous idea. Mm. Uh, it's going to be on at the Astor. Mm, that's right, on Sunday, June the 25th at 2 o'clock. It's only one screening in Melbourne. And one performance. And one performance. So this is your only chance to come along to see it. Um and the other thing that I've been very busy doing in preparation for the um, screening and performance at the Astor is I've just, for the first time, um, recorded the full score and I'm releasing it on DVD because I think that it needs to be seen in conjunction with the film. I worked that long. Wow. Uh, so so what, you've got the visual as as well as the sound? Yeah, yeah. I haven't um it's not the latest restored version of the movie but it's still a good version of the movie they're being very um the people that I've been dealing with over the restored version of the movie um they're based at the uh, Deutsches Kinematik in Berlin um and they're being very um cautious about letting the film out for video release because as soon as it is released it's put on YouTube of course and they don't want that to happen just yet. They want people to appreciate it uh, in its full quality. Mm, well, Is I think it's just that they, no, they don't want to lose the right, you know, the, the um, any money income streams from it. I think is the well. What sort of income streams are they? Well, tell me. Well, as a for How screening, how much does it cost you to get this to happen? Um, well, it's a deal 
so you have to pay a split of income from performances. It's a, a bit of a complex deal with this particular film because the, the person who owns the rights to Pandora's Box is a different person to the people who've restored Made the this. restoration. Yeah, so I have to pay sort of um, technical type of fees to get the... Um, uh, to get the restoration and then yeah, you have to, to actually, pay the person who owns it a certain royalty. Yeah, yeah. And then the video... Who, who does own it? Um, it's a company called Prazens in Switzerland. And so what, did they buy up all the uh, stock of the director? Is that how it worked? Well, no, not um, of GW Pabst. I mean, they're a distribution company for many different movies, you know, including sort of contemporary movies of today, but I'm not quite sure how they got their hands on Isn't that Pandora's interesting? Box. That's why I was sort of interested because, mm. of course, all this work, all this creative work mm. in the end ends in the hands of somebody like that. Yeah, although I guess, you it's know... like the gully trap of <laughs> commercial life. <that's> yeah. all. <laughs> well, it is a little bit. and But with this project, um, just to backtrack a little, you asked me right at the beginning, you know, about the history of the film. When I did write it right back in the 90s, I released a CD, an audio CD of excerpts of the score. And, you know, that was great. Um but I've always, since that time, wanted to have a full record of the score because it's one of the biggest things I've ever done and and I'm really proud of it. And um, so that's what started the journey probably almost a year ago now of me tracking down who owned the rights to the film and how could I um, record the score to the DVD, which was all it was going to be at first. And then when I found out that there was this um, restored print, I thought, well, you know, nobody in Australia has seen this. You know, it's been shown in Europe and England um, and in the States a fair bit already. It actually was restored back in 2009, but I only found this out last year. Um, so so I, distance does count. <laughs> yeah, well, distance does count, but we're a different audience here too. I mean, Europe, that, that film, Pandora's Box, I was reading the other day, is the second highest grossing independent film in the States still and which goes to show the kudos that that film has and Louise Brooks has an icon but most people haven't even heard of her here um, and there's not that such a, a broad interest in silent film as a as a, as, as a cultural touchstone yeah so you know um, it's a bit of a, a battle getting people interested in in um, coming along Perhaps oh, to I, the think, movie? I think it's fantastic. I think this is a, a full-on event, mm. and you'd be crazy to miss it. Mm. Oh, well, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah. So I think it is too, and and because it's such a one-off, I also think that I, um, you know, I mean, we put on ten shows back in 1993, but that just wouldn't ever happen anymore because of the economic changes that you know uh, are with us um, today. So, um, you know, you get your one or, or one screening, you know, I am going to do another screening at the Port Ferry um, Spring Music Festival in October. Right. So that will be right down at Port Ferry. Which though. would be a lovely um, venue. Where, what, at the uh, Picture Theatre there? Yeah, the Reardon Theatre. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I've got one other screening um, booked for through the National Film and Sound Archive, which I'm really wrapped about. In Canberra. As well, in Canberra. So that's the three screenings I've got organised at the moment. But I'm, I'm I'm going to, after this Astor um, performance is over, um, 
I'm I'm going to uh, keep working on getting some more screenings around you, the country. You should try the Sydney Sydney Opera House. I reckon it would look just go like a bomb. <laughs> It'd be fantastic. I'd love to play at the Sydney Opera House. Have you got any contacts? <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody listening, bring up. Thanks very much, Jeannie, for coming in. It's a pleasure. Well, that's it for Showreel this week. Uh, the uh, fabulous notion of seeing a full cinematic silent film era film with a live score should entice you to go to the Astor at 2pm on Sunday the 25th in Melbourne to uh, listen to Jenna Anderson's wonderful piece of work. I'm going to be there. It's uh, timed for Published or Not here on 3CR 855 on your AM dial streaming podcast. But before I go, I should uh, thank all those people who contributed to Showreel's Radiothon tally. There's plenty of time to contribute. We still need some more. You ring on 94198377 now and you can contribute to our tally or you can go online to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Be part of Radio for Change. Where you meant to be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of all folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.